It's good to see you this morning to worship. Let's stand together as we begin our worship time this morning. I heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How He gave His life on Calvary To save a wretch like me I heard about His glory Of His precious blood's atonement Then I repented of my sin And won the victory Oh, victory in Jesus my Savior forever sought me and bought me with His redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew Him, and all my love is to Him. Plunge me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Again and cause the blind to see. And then I cried, Dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He saw me and bought me with his redeeming blood.
Well, good morning. If that doesn't get you fired up, your wood's wet. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being with us in worship. If you're a guest, we ask you to please take one of the care cards. Uh, they're located in the rack there in front of you. And fill in your information. We'd like to have uh, your information so we can at least send you something uh, from our church. And thank you for being with us. On the back of the care card is a place for all of us to fill in prayer requests. And so we want to hear from you there, too, as a church family. As you leave today, there's uh, boxes on the round tables, and you can place those cards there uh, as you leave. But again, thank you for being with us today in worship. Uh, please be in prayer this morning. We do have a team. Our youth mission team is on their way back from Alaska. They're probably just now getting up, uh, being four hours behind us. Uh, but they'll be flying back and getting in tonight around 1130. So they've got a full day of travel. And so remember them in your prayers today uh, as you pray. But I know they've had a great week, and we'll be looking forward to hearing from them uh, very soon. Ladies, I want to remind you, uh, there's a You Can Do It event coming up on July the 14th. Uh, those tickets are $5, and that begins at 6.30, and you'll want to be a part of that. Uh, there's uh, classes like uh, cleaning hacks, phone photography, container gardening, smart cooking, protecting yourself, a self-defense class, and you'll want to be a part of that. So go by the information desk in the foyer and get signed up for that. Also, there are Deacon nomination forms. Hopefully you got one of those in community group this morning. If you did not, those are located also at the information desk. And then our VBS is coming up on July 25th to the 28th. Uh, you can register online. We ask that you do that at pbcweb.org. And you can also sign up for snack suppers. It'll be available, but you must sign up for those to participate in the snack suppers uh, each night. We also have a VBS kickoff coming up on July 24th. That's a Sunday night at 5 o'clock. There are details coming, and I hear it involves me possibly getting slimed. I may not be there that night, <clears throat> but we'll find out. Anyway, you'll be hearing more about that as that gets a little closer. Thank you for being with us. If you would take just a moment, and let's uh, just pray silently where we're seated uh, this morning, if you have needs, and just to prepare our hearts this morning, uh, let's go into a time of prayer, and then I'll pray out loud. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for allowing us to be in this building, to meet with our church family, to worship and honor your name. And God, I pray as we sing, as we give, as we hear the message that you have given to your servant, God, that in all of it, we would honor and praise your holy name. God, sometimes we forget about your holiness and God, our need uh, for your presence. So God, I pray even this morning, if there are things between uh, us and you, God, that we would confess those even right now. God, that we would be willing to hear a word from your Holy Spirit today, that we would be willing to act on it. God, if there's someone in this room that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, maybe today's message or something they hear would be a prompting from the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray they would say yes today. God, we do pray for our team, our youth team that's in Alaska who will be traveling back today. God, we pray for all their connections to be on time and for them to be safe, God for that there to be no complications in travel, that they would get back safely, God. 
be with each one of them. And I pray that they have been challenged and God that they would be forever changed for being uh, missionaries this past week. God, be with the needs in this room. You know each one. We do again pray for this service, God. Help it, it to be honoring to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity all. Would you stand with me? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to
promise we were away without hope, without life. Till from heaven you came run, there was mercy in your eyes. To fulfill the law and prophets, to a virgin came the word. From a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the
be seated. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan and musicians. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 2 as we continue our journey uh, through the shortest gospel, a gospel of action. And this morning we're looking at the subject matter, Jesus' authority over life, religious practice, and the Sabbath. But you'll be happy to know I've drawn the message in a little bit and decided to stop at verse 17. And we'll pick up in verse 18 next week, uh, God willing. But if you would keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2. And uh, also I hope this morning that you have one of those uh, sermon note pages. Uh, now before I get into the message, I do want to speak a moment about the, uh, the decision Friday that came out and, and we know that uh, unfortunately we have never seen our nation as divided over things as we are right now. I mean there's a laundry list of things in society that separate us as people and divide us and there's a lot of anger out there and a lot of rage and of course this issue over Roe v. Wade is one of the areas where you and I as believers hopefully uh, can be a witness for Jesus Christ uh, you know it's no accident that the church consistently uh, over its 2,000 year history in all branches and by that I mean whether Catholic or Protestant or whether the church in the East or the church in the West. By and large, not without exception, but by and large the church has spoken with one voice for life. The church has been pro-life for which we should be very grateful and uh, there are reasons for this that are beyond the scope and the time of what I want to uh, take at the moment. But if you want a great resource on this that would help you to be a witness to your friends, I would encourage you to go online and buy a book entitled Christian Ethics by Dr. Wayne Grudem. Some of you have Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology He's got a Christian ethics book out that, like his theology, it's a massive volume. But he speaks in such clear and simple language. And folks, what is ethics? Uh, ethics is theology applied. And so if you want to talk about theology being lived out in your everyday life in very practical decisions, that's what ethics is all about. And by the way, if you have a young person, that volume by Wayne Gruden, Christian Ethics, would be a great resource uh, to have in your personal library to work through that volume with your, with your young people. Uh, but he lays out the case very succinctly, very clearly, very thoroughly as to why the church has been pro-life down through the years. And some practical steps that ought to grow out of being pro-life. So I would encourage you uh, to get that volume. 
You know, the church has understood that we're not to take life which is made in God's image. In fact, to take a life is to strike at the very image of God. Because that's a person made in the image of God. And in fact, this was so serious in the Old Testament that the most severe punishment anywhere found in the Old Testament law was reserved for one who caused either harm or death to the unborn. You see, in many cases, if you accidentally killed somebody, there was a city of refuge that you could run to while everything could be investigated and it could be fleshed out and it could be determined it was an accidental killing. If it was a purposeful killing, they were, the community was to enact capital punishment. But if it was accidental, that would be worked out and the person would not forfeit their, right, uh, their life because they had taken a life. However, did you realize in the case of the unborn, even if you accidentally caused a woman to lose her unborn child, even accidentally, the punishment was capital punishment. There was no city of refuge. That's how serious this matter is. But anyway, at some point in the future, I'd love to lay out more of these issues. But I would encourage you to get that volume that I just recommended to you. Christian Ethics by Dr. Wayne Gruden. And especially young people read through that. I think it would be very helpful as you enter into these type of discussions uh, with your friends. Because again, this is, a, this is an issue that really divides us. But uh, we need to know how in the church to speak very clearly uh, to the pro-life issue. Amen? If you would stand for the reading of God's word, please. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 13 of Matthew chapter, uh, Mark chapter 2. And we're going to read down just through verse 17. Scripture says here that he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, this is your word. You've inspired it through your Holy Spirit. And even as you have inspired it by your Spirit, I pray that your Spirit would illuminate our minds and our hearts to understand your word. Lord, your word is given to be a light to our path and a lamp for our feet. 
It's to direct our steps. Your word is to be the very foundation that our lives are are built upon, that our families are built upon. So we thank you this morning for your word. We desperately need to hear your word, God. As a people and as a society, we pray that once again it might be your pleasure to turn the hearts of people to yourself. Lord, help the church in these days to be the salt and light that you have called us to be. To be men and women and boys and girls of influence. And Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus, the way he reached out to people. And he showed the love of God, even in the midst of sin, and he called for repentance and faith and and holy living. But he would associate with anybody in order that they might understand the good news that the kingdom of God is near. Father, may we follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. Speak to us through this text, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said these words, and if you have that sermon note guide, I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, For though I am free from all... I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Ladies and gentlemen, it is very clear what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He did not join in the sin of others. But while maintaining purity, he sought to identify with people for the sake of winning them to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible is very clear that you and I are to be holy and we're to be separate from the world. But the Bible is just as clear that we are to associate with people for the sake of the gospel. The Christian who stays inside of the walls of the church and never befriends people out in the world is very likely to be a person who will never make a difference for the sake of Christ. And at the same time, the Christian who allows his or her life to become tainted by the world will lose their testimony and likewise they will never have very much of an impact for the sake of the gospel. And so the challenge is to be in the world but not of the world. You've heard that many times. And it's more than just a cliche. It's the truth. We're to be in the world but not of the world. 
And being in the world, we are to associate with people who need Christ. We're to identify with them and befriend them. That we might influence them with the good news of the gospel. And I would ask you today, where does this kind of attitude come from? This attitude comes from Jesus himself. And so those who follow him are to follow in his steps. Now let's see how that's fleshed out in this text this morning. First of all, I want you to notice with me the authority of Jesus over men's lives. Here again, Mark tells us about great crowds that were following Jesus. Folks, Jesus must have been a very winsome character. You know, we don't, we don't do any good whatsoever to the cause of Christ if our personality is such that nobody would ever want to be around us. I've spoken to people in the church before that they would be talking about some friend of theirs who claims to be a Christian and, and they might say uh, she or he has the spiritual gift of being sandpaper. And we know what they, they mean by that. That person is so abrasive that nobody really wants to be around them. Dr. Charles Page at First Baptist of Charlotte said, we're not to be like a bunch of people who were uh, uh, raised and weaned on dill pickles and had a relapse. There was something winsome about the Lord Jesus. And folks, we're to remember that the fruit of the Spirit is what is to characterize our lives. And let's remember that especially right now in a nation that is so divided and so filled with rage about any given number of topics. As believers, we are to exemplify the fruit of the Spirit. We see here how people were drawn to Jesus. He offered them hope. And you'll notice that he taught with authority. And so here were great crowds that were following him. And the Bible says that on this occasion he passed by a booth, a tax collector's booth. And there seated at that booth was a man by the name of Levi. By the way, it's believed this is the same man named Matthew. Matthew, who wrote Matthew's gospel. Matthew and Levi, one and the same. And Levi was a tax collector. Now, he would have been collecting taxes in this region for Herod Antipas. While not being directly for Rome, it was essentially the same. Because Herod Antipas had been put in power by Rome. He represented Rome. You and I need to understand that tax collectors were despised. They were seen as traitors to their own people. You see, they were Jews. They were locals. They were men who had bid for the opportunity of collecting taxes in a given region. And so they were Jews who had sold out to Rome. And it wasn't easy to be a tax collector. You had to put up a large sum of money to get one of these deals. You became a franchise owner, so to speak, in that area. 
to have the right to collect taxes for Rome. And here's kind of how it worked. Let's say that the main tax collector around Galilee died. And so Rome would advertise for his replacement. And there may be a number of people interested. And so Rome would say, okay, tell me how much do you think you can collect out of this area? And so different bidders would say, well, I think I can collect X amount of money, X amount of denarii from this region. And another one, another bidder would throw out his bid and so forth and so on. And Rome would usually go with the guy who offered the highest bid. And once you got the franchise, once Rome awarded you that franchise, it was seen as a quick way to get rich. Tax collectors were also seen as crooks and as extortionists because they made their living over whatever extra they could collect. They would collect the amount of money that they had promised to send in to Rome and so they had to collect that just to break even. And then whatever they could collect above and beyond that would be their salary. They had paid a lot of money to own this tax collector franchise in that region. And so they had a lot of money to recoup. And they were greedy. And so what they would do is they would tell you that you owed far more than you actually owed. And people generally knew that they did this. But it's not like we have the Freedom of Information Act or anything else like that that we enjoy today. There was no way you could check out what your actual tax debt was. And so you just had to go along with whatever the tax collector said to you about that. And remember the tax collector had the power of Rome behind them to collect. And so tax collectors were generally just a bunch of crooks. And they taxed everything. You had your land tax. You had your property tax. You, you were taxed on the number of wheels you had on your cart. You were taxed on the number of animals that pulled that cart. And the number of animals you had. Even the number of legs on those animals used to pull the carts. You were taxed on all that. You were taxed on the load inside the cart. And there was a road tax and a bridge tax and an import tax and an export tax. And on and on it went. They came up with a tax for everything. Because of the way they were Jews, they were outcast by many of the other Jews. And so this meant that a tax collector lived a very lonely life. I guess you could say in many ways a tax collector had sold uh, his soul to the devil. Folks, just think about it. What if you had an IRS agent living in your neighborhood... And he had been put there specifically to spy on the residents of your neighborhood. And he had the freedom to collect as much as he wanted with the power of Washington, D.C. backing him up. And everybody in the neighborhood felt like he was demanding more than they actually owed. How do you think he would be treated at the neighborhood cookouts and get-togethers? 
Do you think he or she would win man or woman of the year and, and, and would be the best friend of everybody in the cul-de-sac, in the neighborhood? Absolutely not. They would be despised. And so you get the picture of first century tax collectors. And as Mark Strauss writes in his commentary on Mark, most of the people at this time named Levi, uh, named, named Levi were Levites. And who were the Levites? Levites were a tribe of people that they were supposed to be servants of God. Levites were dedicated to serve God. And so this Levi would have been even more despised because everybody would have known here is a man who was supposed to have dedicated his life to God and serving the law of God, the Torah, and the synagogue and the temple. But instead, he is a servant of Rome and he's cheating us, his own people. So this Levi, in particular, would have probably been doubly despised. Tax collectors were also unclean. They weren't welcome in the synagogues. They had to give up their attendance at the synagogue. They were lumped in with murderers. That was the public opinion of them. They were not allowed to testify in Jewish courts. And the Jews had a law or a custom that you could actually lie to a tax collector. The Mishnah even uh, prohibited you from receiving a love gift a benevolent gift from a tax collector because it was viewed that the tax collector had gotten that money by greed or ill-gotten gains. So again, that's Levi's life. We need to understand that as the background of this text here. Levi's booth is believed to have been at the gate of some sort of important road. I want you to remember Israel was like a land bridge between the major nations to the east of it, the north and east of it, and then Egypt down to the southwest. And all these highways, these major roads ran through Israel. And so it would have been at one of those main roads up in Galilee where, where Levi had his tax collector's booth there around Capernaum. And Capernaum was a major commercial center being a fishing city for that area. So Levi has this booth there. He's right in between Herod Philip's area and Herod Antipas's region. Antipas was the governor or the, or the tetrarch of Galilee and Philip was the tetrarch for the Decapolis region where Capernaum was. So again, he's sitting there at a very busy place. And I want you to notice what happens here. Here's Jesus passing by with his disciples. And Jesus has been teaching. And he's just healed a leper. Something no rabbi would have dared 
do at that time to touch a leper. Here's a spiritual leper. I mean, this is an episode that was even more dramatic because here's Levi, a spiritual leper, somebody nobody wanted anything to do with, and, and Jesus passes by Levi's tax collector's booth and he calls him to become one of his disciples, to become one of his followers. Folks, this was scandalous. Rabbis, and I'll say more about this later, would not have dared associated with somebody like this. But Jesus goes so far not only to associate with him, but actually to call Levi to be one of his disciples, one of his followers. Jesus has the authority to change men's lives. He has the authority over life. Second thing I want you to notice with me this morning. The conversion of Levi being an example. That conversion involves the beginning of a new life of discipleship. Look at what verse 14 says. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Again, the call to follow Jesus was the call to become a disciple. They understood what this meant. Jesus wasn't simply inviting Levi to take an hour lunch break or to go get a hot cup of tea or a cup of coffee with him. He was calling upon Levi to forsake his very way of life and become a lifelong follower of Jesus. Again, this would have been seen as scandalous. Jesus calling an outcast like this. You know, it's no doubt that Levi has heard of Jesus because so much of Jesus' ministry has been in this area so far, in and around those ten cities around Galilee. Exactly where Levi's been conducting his business, if you can call it that. So Levi's no doubt heard about Jesus and everything that's been happening. Remember we saw last week how all of the city was going out to Jesus and listening to him and being touched by him, having their lives transformed. Levi had no doubt heard about this. And Jesus knows men's hearts. He knew Levi's heart. Did he know that Levi was sick and tired of a lonely life? Was he sick and tired of living like he was a betrayer to his own people? We don't know, but we do know that whatever Jesus did know his heart. And Jesus called Levi to follow him. And I want you to notice that without hesitation, Levi left everything and he followed Jesus. Now there's a lot written about this. For a tax collector to quit meant no turning back. If you were a fisherman, you could go back to your boat. You could go back to your fishing business. But if you were a tax collector and you left your booth, you left your business, there was virtually no going back to it whatsoever. 
Because, see, again, there were lots of other vultures waiting to buy into your franchise. And so if you left your franchise and you turned away from it, somebody else would zero in on, on your turf and they would put in a bid to Rome and they would become your replacement and you wouldn't get a job like that again. And so I want you to understand how radical it is of what Levi's doing at this point. He is cutting ties with everything about his life there is no going back Levi is somebody who is an example to us of a man who walks away from everything folks he wasn't walking up to the edge of the water and dipping his toe in the water to see if he liked it or not I mean he's diving in He's abandoning everything. He's forsaking all. And you know, that's a model for us too, isn't it? Because Levi came to understand what will it profit a man if he gains the entire world and loses his very own soul. He understood that. The rich young ruler didn't understand that. Remember, Jesus called the rich young ruler to follow him, just like he called Levi. The rich young ruler, because he was so wealthy, he wouldn't turn away from his riches. He wouldn't obey the call of Jesus to follow him. He turned back to his way of life. But Levi jumps in. Jumps in head first, becoming a disciple. Abandons everything about his old life. He's somebody who understood. He had come to understand whether it was in that moment, whether this is something that the Spirit of God had been brewing in his heart. We don't know, but he's somebody who had come to understand exactly what Jesus talked about in Matthew 13 about the treasure hidden in the field. Here's a guy in a field, and, and he's doing his work, and he uncovers a treasure. And out of joy, he covers that treasure back up. He goes and sells everything he has. He comes back and he buys that field so he can have the treasure in the field. He understands the value of that. And Jesus says, that's how the kingdom of heaven is. It's that valuable. It's worth giving up everything for. And that's what Levi does. And that's Jesus' call to you and me too. Because Jesus said, no one can be his disciple and come after him unless he denies himself, picks up his cross. A cross is an instrument of death. It denies himself, picks up his cross, and follows me. And Jesus said, if you're not willing to do that, you cannot be his disciple. Folks, he's not just looking for people who will walk up to the edge of the water and dip, dip their big toe in. He's looking for people who will jump in. Who will forsake all to follow Christ. You know, the Son of God didn't come to simply call the university presidents, the world leaders, bank presidents. He came to call everybody, even the lowly and despised. I've mentioned 1 Corinthians 1 to you before. that uh, How Paul says, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things and the weak things of the world and the despised things of the world to confound the wise. To, to confound the wise. Why does God do this? So all the glory goes to him. 
all the glory goes to God and God alone. When people see what God is able to do in just ordinary people's lives. Anybody willing to repent and follow Christ can be in the Lord's army. Aren't you glad of that? A third thing I want you to see with me uh, this morning. The celebration banquet by Levi uh, being an example, first of all, of the gratitude that ought to characterize each one of us as Christians. And also an example that we should reach out to the despised and the lowly. Verse 15 says, as he reclined at table in his house, probably Levi's house, many tax collectors, that'd be friends and associates of Levi, tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so now the scene shifts to Levi's home. And it's probably a large home because, again, Levi was probably somewhat well-to-do. And Mark tells us that Levi had many of his friends and associates and colleagues there. And Jesus went there with his disciples. In all probability, Levi is hosting this dinner in Jesus' honor uh, out of gratitude that Jesus would call somebody like him. Because again, it, it's astounding. Here's a rabbi and he's, he's becoming the best known rabbi in the land. And he has called somebody like me to follow him. So this is a dinner given out of joy and celebration. We're told the background of these guests. Just like Levi. They were just like Levi. Folks, you know, one thing about us Christians that we need to think about is that we probably seldom associate with people who need Christ the most. Once we become Christians and start growing in the Lord, a lot of our friends might become church friends. I mean, I understand how this happens. We get in a church fellowship. Of fellow believers. We grow together in the Lord. We start fellowshipping together and communing together. I mean that's what we're supposed to do. Because we've all been made new in Jesus Christ. We all have that in common. And so we just kind of naturally as time goes by. Maybe our circles get drawn in more and more. To its our church friends or our Christian friends. But you know what? This also needs to concern us, doesn't it? Because most lost people, I can tell you right now, America's changing and studies show this. Most lost people are not going to get up on a sunny morning and a man say to his wife, Hey honey, let's get up and get dressed and, and get the kids ready. We're going to go down to that local church this morning. It's not happening. My mother-in-law Deceased now, obviously, but she tells me how in the early days of her and her husband in ministry, way back a long time ago, 
how in their communities they'd put a church sign up, you know, revival, and everybody in that community would come to revival that week. I mean, you'd have the Methodists and the Presbyterians coming with you. And then after your revival, they might put up a revival sign and all the Baptists would go to those churches and, and enjoy revivals all week long. I mean, all he had to do is put a sign out front and lost people would come oftentimes. Folks, that day is no more. I, I hate to tell you, we're not in Mayberry anymore. And I know you know this. Lost people, chances are, are not going to come here in a setting like this on a Sunday morning as their first exposure. And so what's that mean? That means you and I have got to be a little more creative, right? When we're getting together with our Sunday school class on Friday night, or invite a neighbor over. When you're doing things, invite, invite a work associate over. Let them meet your group. One thing I've tried to do recently with all these bad storms and all the trees in my neighborhood, big, huge limbs down, get my chainsaw out and help a couple of my neighbors who were unchurched. And they've expressed appreciation over that. We've got to try to think of ways that we get outside of our own little bubbles and, and we try to, we try to uh, build bridges to some of the lost people that are in our circles of influence so we can introduce them to Christ. What do you and I need to be doing to do more of that? We've got to think about that. We're also told here about the bitterness against these guests. The scribes and Pharisees didn't like one bit what's going on here. Now you know, you and I read Pharisees in the Bible and we think if anybody were to say Pharisees out loud back at this time, everybody in the crowd would say, boo, boo, and they would have hated them. But that, that wasn't the case at all. The Pharisees were seen by many people at that time as national heroes. They had grown up in the period between the Testaments. And they'd grown, the word Pharisee means separated ones. They dedicated them, themselves to ensuring that their nation was never again going to go down the road of idolatry and sin that carried them away into exile in the first place. And so a lot of people would have associated the Pharisees with the religious crowd who's trying to help us. I mean, these guys are heroes. Now, obviously, not everybody would have felt that way about them, but a lot of people did. But you see where they got into trouble, they, they started coming up with their oral traditions and laws that they put on top of the written law, and they really got carried away with that, and they made it to where the average man or the woman on the street, there's no way you could really live your life and do your, your career and keep all the law to their satisfaction. Pharisees would have never gone to a meal like this. In fact, did you realize that Pharisees would not even go to a common Israelite's home to eat because they would have been concerned that the person had not prepared all the food in accordance with the oral tradition. They wouldn't even go to a common Israelite's home. They certainly wouldn't have been caught dead at a house like Levi's. And their thinking here is, how can a man of God, 
How can a man that everybody is saying he's a man of God, how can somebody like Jesus be going to a house like that and hanging out with people like that? If you've got the New Living Translation, it really captures the heart of what's going on here. The Pharisees say, how could he go and hang out with scum like that? How could he hang out with scum like that? That's what they're thinking. Let me give you a modern day analogy to all this. And I want to emphasize this is fictional, okay? This is only an illustration. I don't want anybody, even somebody listening online, to think that I'm telling about an event that actually happened. But I want to take you back a moment in your mind to the mid-90s. Something that did happen. You remember what happened in the Charlotte area in the mid-90s? You were probably there. I was there. Billy Graham, they had just built Panther Stadium, remember? And Billy Graham, Charlotte's most famous son, was going to come back home for one last crusade in his hometown. And so that's what happened. That part of the story is true. But now the hypothetical. Let's say the biggest gangster in Charlotte. Let's give him a gangster name. Let's call him something like Big Al. Let's say out of curiosity, Big Al goes to the Billy Graham crusade in Charlotte and God begins working on Big Al's heart. And Big Al goes back a second night. He goes back a third night. And on the fourth night, Big Al gets saved. Now Big Al's been known in this area as the biggest drug lord and pimp and sex trafficker, and pornographer, and strip club owner in all of Mecklenburg County. And Big Al turns away from all that. Big Al owns the biggest mansion on Lake Norman. He manages to somehow or another get word to Billy Graham. He's going to host a huge banquet at his mansion and he wants Billy Graham to be there he wants Billy Graham to talk to his friends he wants Billy Graham to even preach to his friends he says Dr. Graham I'm going to have all of my friends and associates there the dark underbelly of Charlotte and the surrounding area I'm going to get them all there because I want them to hear what I heard at your crusade I want them to be saved and on the day of the banquet Big Al sends his bodyguard and his limo driver up to Black Mountain, picks up Billy Graham. Billy Graham gets to Big Al's. There's 500 guests that night. Huge banquet. Glorious food. Everybody's having a great time. Big Al has all his friends be seated, turns it over to Billy Graham. Billy Graham preaches. Maybe on something like the prodigal son or something. I don't know. But out of those 500, over 75 of those 500 that night come to faith in Christ. Just like Big Al did. And they pledge they're going to turn away from their life of the dark underbelly. They're gloriously saved. Folks, you know what would be said, right? On WBTV that week, here's a report you might hear. Charlotte's religious leaders are calling for a meeting with Dr. Graham. Many of these leaders are thrilled that Dr. Graham was able to lead a number of the region's most undesirables to Christ. But many others are just as concerned. They think Dr. Graham has compromised himself by attending. They're demanding answers. 
Now, folks, you know as well as I do, that's exactly what would happen. And let me ask you, where would you fall in that discussion? Careful how you answer, you might be a Pharisee. Jesus points out the basis for being there with these guests. He gives an analogy. He says, it's sick people that need a doctor. It's sick people that go to the doctor, not people who are well. It's sick people who need treatment. I read about a nurse, a true story, a nurse in a family clinic. She complained she was sick and tired of the waiting room being full of sick people. She said, why don't these sick people stay home? (laughs) Sick people go to a doctor. There's a news flash for you. Jesus is not declaring the Pharisees and everybody else well. That's not the point of the analogy. They were sick too. They just thought they were well. It was the Levi's, the Zacchaeus's, and people like that who flocked to Jesus. They knew they were in trouble with God. And there was no pride, no pretense about their lives. Jesus said he came to call sinners just like this. He came to deal with those who will recognize their condition. He came to give those a new life who realize that they need a new life. The man who doesn't think he needs a Savior, he won't look for a Savior. In fact, he won't accept a Savior because he doesn't think he needs anything. But the man who recognizes that he needs help is the man who receives help. Now keep in mind, Jesus didn't leave these people in their condition. Like he said to the woman at the well, go and sin no more. He didn't tell Levi to go back to his old life at the tax collector's booth. And Jesus wouldn't tell Big Al to go back to his dark ways either. The call to follow Jesus is the call to live a new life. It's important to see he called people to a new life. But it's also important to see that he went to people who knew that they needed it the most. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the first beatitude in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 3. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit means to be poor in the inner man. It's the recognition of our need of God and our recognition of our need of the grace of God. We come to the point of of recognizing that apart from the grace of God, we are in deep, deep trouble. And true happiness and blessedness and peace with God comes only through a poverty of soul like that. Now what does that mean exactly? It means you've got to come to the end of yourself. Folks, peace with God is not a matter of finding yourself. People today say, oh, I just need to go out and try to find myself. What you need to do is go out and not try to find yourself. You need to come to the end of yourself. Who it is that you need to find is Jesus Christ. Only when we come to the end of ourselves will we find Christ. And then he'll show us our purpose. Blessed are those who are 
poor in spirit. In other words, those who understand that, that they are totally bankrupt before a holy God. And if it's not for His amazing grace, there's no hope for them. There's a song we sing. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. But how do some people want to sing that hymn? Jesus paid it in part, some to Him I owe. But that's not right, is it? It's not some to me I owe and some to Him I owe. But what is it? It is all to Him I owe. Some people have these little treasure chests in their imaginations they run over to and they open it up and they might pull out the Ten Commandments and say, look God, I've kept most of these Ten Commandments. Surely I'm saved. Surely you'll be pleased with me. I, I, I should make it to heaven. I've kept most of the Ten Commandments most of the time. Somebody else pulls out their little treasure. Look, God, I've been in church all my life and I've tithed my income since I was young. Surely I'm going to make it to heaven. But to be poor in spirit means you run over that little treasure chest and you open it up and you look inside and you realize there is absolutely nothing inside that you can present to God and say, God, look at me, look at what I've done. It is all because of God's amazing grace in Christ. And again, if it's not for that amazing grace in Christ, I, you, everybody, we'd be lost and on our way to an eternity without Christ. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You don't deserve God's salvation. I don't deserve it. Thank God He doesn't give me what I deserve. But He gives me grace. God's riches at Christ. Experience. That's what Levi experienced. That's what the Pharisees couldn't see. And that's why Jesus told them on one occasion, He said, You guys don't understand the tax collectors and prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Because it was the outcast who were poor in spirit. And they came flocking to Christ. I want to give you some lessons in closing today. Lesson number one. Jesus did not shy away from the neediest persons. He did not stay in a sterile environment away from the lost in the world. He associated with them... Without becoming like them. And by implication he expects his followers to do the same. How much influence do you have with lost people? Second lesson. Jesus called people to make a break with their past and follow him into a new life. Have you done that? Folks, when we get genuinely saved, we become a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Is there this kind of evidence in you that, 
that there's been that time that you became a new creation in Christ. Now I realize we grow over time. It becomes more evident. But has there ever been that moment in your life that you, you know you were spiritually dead and God made you spiritually alive and you came to Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. That's assurance of your salvation, seeing that. And if you've never had that experience, it may be that you need to understand this morning, you need Christ. You need to come to Him and you need to follow Christ. And, and when you follow Him, Levi's a great example. There's no going back to the way that you used to be. Third lesson. Jesus does his work in the hearts of those who are humble enough to admit that they need it. Folks, the Bible says there is none who are righteous. There is no one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, you don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve salvation. We say that, but do we really believe it? I want you to realize that, that there is no one with whom you and I should feel like that we are above hanging out with. If they're hungry for God, we need to be there and we need to try to lead them to Christ and help them grow. If you have a pharisaical attitude, I want you to see that you're actually a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. And plus, an attitude like that may be testimony to you that you don't really understand the grace of God. A pharisaical attitude may reveal to you that you're actually far away from the kingdom of God and you need to see that before it's too late. I want to ask you to pray with me this morning. Father, we are so grateful to read about episodes like this in the Scripture. The biblical writers are so honest to record stories like this of Jesus reaching out to people that nobody else would have dared to reach out to. And what a testimony it is to us. Because we say that we know Christ and we follow Him. Lord, help us to live like Him. Help us to be like Jesus. To have the type of influence that He had. To love people but to hate sin. But to extend the grace of God to those who need it the most. Because at some point, that's been us. Even people who grow up in church and grow up good, good in the eyes of men, they need the grace of God. Lord, may we see that. Lord, give us a vision for reaching people for Christ and for living out the new life you've called us to live. That there's no going back to the way we used to be. 
Father, I pray for people in this church. I, I pray for myself that you would give us a heart for the harvest. And Lord, for that one this morning who maybe has come to realize that he or she's been religious all their life, but they've never been regenerated, they've never been born again, God, I pray that they'd come to Christ before it's too late. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.